In the spring of 2005, a transformer caught fire and exploded at an electricity substation in the southeast of Moscow. The failure sent the city into a total blackout, which quickly cascaded into nearby provinces. Houses, office buildings, factories, everything went dark. Pumping stations went offline, taking out much of the city's water supply. The power outage trapped tens of thousands of commuters underground in stranded subway trains. Surgeons in dark hospitals did what they could by flashlight. In all, an estimated two million people were without power for nearly a day. As for the cause, experts point to two main contributing factors. At the time of the blackout, Moscow was in the middle of a prolonged heat wave, which had residents throughout the city running their AC units on high. That alone would have put dangerous strain on any power grid. But Moscow's power grid hadn't been modernized since 1966, leading to contributing factor number two. Decades of equipment wear and tear and inattention had left the entire system vulnerable. While the Moscow blackout was a particularly dramatic example, this isn't just a Russian issue. The problems that can arise from aging infrastructure are something grid operators everywhere have to worry about. From Aviva Studios, this is Our Industrial Life, the podcast that brings you stories from the essential industries and investigates how data and technology are shaping the future of the connected industrial economy. I'm your host, Rebecca Ahrens, and today we are continuing our discussion of the future of the power grid. In this episode, we're talking about aging infrastructure, what it means for the grid today, how it might impact efforts to decarbonize the grid in the future, and what data and technology can do to mitigate some of the risk factors. You ask about aging infrastructure, that's a good question because our power grid, a lot of it is relatively old, and it runs pretty much the way it did 100 years ago. This is Dr. J. Patrick Kennedy, who often just went by Pat. I just want to note here that we first recorded this interview with Pat a couple of years ago. Pat recently passed away, so I want to take a moment to acknowledge his immense contribution as a pioneer in industrial software. Over 40 years ago, Pat and his team launched a plant information software program known as Aviva Pi System. Decades later, the Pi System is still an essential tool for over 1,200 power utilities and transmission and distribution grid operators. Pat was regularly consulted by members of the critical infrastructure industry about how to maintain grid stability and reliability as we transition to new sources of electricity. You'll hear excerpts from our interview in this episode and can hear more from Pat in the other two episodes in our three-part series on the future of the power grid. Here's part of our interview. So, Pat, can you say a little bit more about these aging assets that make up the power infrastructure here in the U.S.? What kinds of things are we talking about specifically? Well, some of the assets are monster assets. If you think, for example, that transmission voltages can be in the hundreds of thousands of volts, but distribution voltages, which go around the city, those are in the tens of thousands of volts. And the way you bring that down is you have these very large transformers that accept power at these hundreds of thousands of volts, and then they take them off at tens of thousands of volts. Those transformers are critical because they generally are not spared. Right, and I've heard they're also really expensive. So 
how do operators ensure that transformers live a long, productive life? I mean, what what do they do to build that resilience, I guess you could call it? You have to be careful because the word resilient has very definite meaning to a great operator. Reliability, which means it stays at a certain percentage and reliability is measured in the minutes per year. Resiliency means that you have enough flexibility left in the grid to manage an emergency. So if you're looking at a hurricane moving in or you're looking at an ice storm or an earthquake, managing that grid during these stressful times is called resiliency. I see. Okay, that's a helpful distinction. But a good story of that, we were working with one of our power utility customers that were doing some asset management with our software. And what they had to do is that based on what the asset was, they had to identify what these variables meant. This is the input voltage, this is the output voltage, this is the temperature, this is the current, et cetera. And then put them together into a calculation to see if there was a problem. So they had all the variables in place and at their central facility, They put the calculations together, and the instant they did that, the transformer turned bright red, indicating it was in uh, incipient failure stress mode. They immediately sent people out, and the transformer was hissing, which is a very bad thing to happen in a transformer. So they were able to take that transformer out of service, which was a fairly complex procedure, schedule a routine, and then go ahead and fix it and break it back up. And without that asset management software and the advance notice that it enables, I imagine this story would have a very different ending. That would be called a transformer explosion. And if you go on YouTube and say transformer explosion, there's several of them that were caught on film. And these are dramatic things. These, the, the one in New York, was so energetic, it actually set up a wave pattern across the river when it blew up. That's what happens if these things are, if these things get out of control. But can you really put spares in? These transformers are millions of dollars. One of the transformers in that same utility, I believe it was 85 years old. A quick aside, I did look up the transformer explosion Pat mentioned. It happened in New York in 2018. You can go see for yourself. The night sky goes wild with this brilliant cyan light. It caused such a panic, in fact, that LaGuardia Airport briefly grounded flights on a very busy holiday travel weekend. You can find footage online of people filming the sky with their phones, wondering out loud if we're under attack by a foreign enemy or being invaded by aliens. That's how intense it looks. Unfortunately, the possibility of exploding transformers is not the only problem caused by aging infrastructure. We're living in an increasingly populous and electrified world, and much of it runs on equipment that might be, as Pat said, over 85 years old. To decarbonize the power grid, we'll need infrastructure that isn't just less vulnerable to failures. We'll need infrastructure that's more efficient in order to meet the rising demand for power. The challenge is this. How do we get the most out of those existing assets and prevent them from failing in a catastrophic way that could have ripple effects across the entire grid? That's where industrial software and data come in. 
But what does that actually look like to use data to address these issues? That is a fantastic question. This is David Bartolo. He's the head of asset intelligence at AGL, where he leads a small team that concentrates on operational technologies supporting power generation assets, especially distributed renewable assets like solar and wind. And before we get into the interview, I just want to note that David's audio is a little noisy. We did our best to clean it up, but apologies about any bumps or scrapes or email chimes or passing cars that you might hear in the background. David, I know your team has a lot of experience on this point. Could you help us understand how data and software can help operators improve the efficiency of your existing infrastructure? Just with wind farms, large centralized wind farms, before we set up diagnostics and we're monitoring using some fancy software that helped us understand anomalies, you can risk hidden losses. Wind wind generation is extremely noisy because the wind goes up and down. In other words, if you graph a data stream that represents the power output from a particular wind turbine over time, you'll see that the line will move around a lot. It won't show a steady output like you would expect to see from a traditional gas-powered turbine. This variance makes it hard to determine what is normal variation in output due to changes in wind and what's abnormal variation that might point to problems with the equipment. It's a tricky problem to solve. So it's, it's very easy to have hidden massive losses that you can't see easily and manage easily. So, and that gets that that gets actually much more profound and of a much higher risk level when you have thousands of small assets. So you could have a thousand homes with their solar systems shaded by trees that have grown over the last six months uh, through the spring and the summer period, and now they're now shading. They're, they're not. Uh, producing as much as they could. You could have batteries that are in a um, state of distress that are not working properly, and you could easily not see this and not manage it. So you uh, may have billions of dollars worth of assets in the field that could provide you massive capacity, but that capacity is effectively eroded because you're not properly monitoring and understanding the health of your assets and the degradation of those assets. So that's why it's such a big risk to us. It it makes sure that we understand what we can do with the assets in real time and where we need to take action to avoid further loss. So it sounds like these are kinds of problems that you're describing that are particularly insidious because they might like at the small scale, it might not be that big of an issue, but if you take that problem and compound it across hundreds or thousands of assets, then you're talking about a huge problem that's maybe costing thousands or millions of dollars. Absolutely. You know, you, you've you got um, enough customers and you've got enough assets out there to store 100 megawatt hours of energy, um, but that's been degraded to only... 70 megawatt hours of energy and you don't even know it. So you're incorrectly in the market. You're not correctly positioned when you do need that energy. It's not there for you. You're paying thousands of dollars because you weren't aware of these, uh, of the condition of these thousands of assets that you're trying to support a national electricity network with. What about, um, 
you know, bigger sort of more immediately show-stopping events. I mean, I hear what you're saying about this sort of small um, inefficiencies that add up to a larger impact, but things like, you know, maybe a whole power generation system goes down. What role does data play in helping you make sure those kinds of big catastrophic events are avoided. As, as we move towards uh, virtual power plants becoming more predominant, the risks rise exponentially. If you haven't already listened to our first episode in the Future of the Power Grid series, a virtual power plant might not be a familiar phrase. A virtual power plant, often abbreviated to VPP, is a cloud-based network that aggregates the capacities of many distributed energy resources like rooftop solar panels, small-scale wind farms, battery storage systems, and other small-to-medium-scale power-generating assets. In the aggregate, all these distributed resources form a kind of gigantic battery that can be used to support the grid. So in the future, maybe in 10 years' time, the VPP may be our largest high-speed dispatchable energy source into a a large region, maybe a state, etc., if you don't understand that exact capacity of what you can do at an instant, you could place the entire network at risk. If we think we can discharge 300 megawatts instantly of energy into that network during an emergency, and, and that is a frequency control ancillary service that we are bidding legally into that network, and we can't provide that instant power that state's network could collapse instantly. That is of extreme risk to this business. Where we thought we could do 300 megawatts, we actually turned it on during an emergency. We only got 100 megawatts out there, and that was too short. It left the network short and the network collapsed. That would be a nightmare scenario. Data, accurate data, well-analyzed data, well-understood data, is our only defense uh, to stop that from happening. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So you're saying it's easier to keep an eye on the availability of, say, a single peaker plant, but when you have a lot of generation assets out in the field, suddenly it can get a lot more complicated to keep an accurate measure of your available capacity. So what are you doing to try and address that? In the past, uh, all we did with our wind plant is try to manage availability. Um, That only gets you part of the way there. Uh, We looked at uh, what was available in the market, and we found that with our real-time data infrastructure, uh, many of the features that have helped to increase the yield from a wind farm, not just the availability, could be programmed ourselves. Another quick aside here, when David refers to AGL's infrastructure or system, he's talking about software that allows the company to collect, organize, tag, visualize, and analyze real-time data coming in from the different power-producing assets. You can find more information on how AGL is using this software on the episode page. So what kind of changes um, would you be making on the wind farm to improve yield? What, what are you looking at specifically? What kind of data streams? We try to uh, gather as much time series data from the turbines as possible. Uh, and we centralize that through our infrastructure. And then we start to visualize different aspects of how the farm is performing. But also we can try to produce 
future data forecasts. Can I ask what you're visualizing on these turbines? What is the data showing you exactly? So first of all, just visualizing the output of each turbine in a way that can be really easily visualized over a month, day by day, on a single page or just for the day. And you can start to identify the turbines that are lazier than the others. Then you can do other correlations because they might be in it for certain directions of wind, they may be at a disadvantage where you know that you're going to be a bit, bit weaker in this direction, but you should have been stronger in that direction. What we're trying to do is see through the noise of the wind to see those turbines that are not performing. And once you can visualize all of this, you, you've used software to create displays and you can start pinpointing which turbines are underperforming and so on, then, then what do you do? We then built more sophisticated tools that help us understand your error, where the turbines are not pointing 90 degrees into the wind. We produced some really, really nice tools to help us identify those turbines. We're losing big money on those. To the point it was so accurate that they could do, they're starting to do just digital Um, realignment without having to climb the tower and do a full uh, recalibration of the wind vane. Uh, We actually changed to a better quality wind vane as well across a farm because we found it was so bad. Um, And now we're doing uh, much more accurate wind forecasting for the next five minutes. Again, it optimizes the way we bid that farm into the market and we avoid fines for being inaccurate. So they're just a few examples of what we've built from our data. Gather as much data as you can, store it centrally and efficiently, and then uh, produce more and more sophisticated and more and more mature models to get you more and more value over time. And that's gone really well. So it sounds like, um, you know, with these turbines being able to compare, say, two turbines that are in in a similar location right next to each other in some configuration, you can start to um, dig into the causality of one that might be underperforming. Because if you don't have that data, you don't know that it's underperforming relative to, you know, its neighbors, then you would never be able to figure out what might be causing that. Is it a material issue? Is it an orientation issue? Is it, you know, some other mechanical failure? Is it just a you know bad data stream? You have to you have to have all of that information and be able to do that visual comparison to even start to address the issue of what might be the root problem. Absolutely. And there's a number of vectors of doing that. There's there's neighbor comparison, as you said, where we compare them to each other. But we also do advanced pattern recognition monitoring of each turbine as an individual where we learn the history of how each point data point correlates with each other data point, and we can pick up anomalies that way as well. So neighbor comparison, fleet comparison, advanced pattern recognition, and also even with the forecasting, um, it's not just you know a few wind data points and um, trying to understand uh, what the output will be. What the team has produced is where they understand that the wind is propagating across the farm like waves on a beach. And we're able to program that in and forecast based on an understanding of how those wind waves are propagating across the farm. It's actually quite fascinating. Hmm. So this this seems like it. this is where it becomes important, not just to have the real-time data that's informing you about what's happening right now, but to also have 
you know, a rich history of data about what's happened before so that you can, can compare the current situation with prior situations. And like you said, compare maybe the state of a, of a turbine to its past performance or under, start to understand these, um, you know, this movement of wind and, and waves, as you as you described, just to understand if you have that historical context, you can you can see more clearly what your current situation is is telling you. Absolutely. And, and the history, you, you touched on the history, which I didn't touch on hard enough. The more rich history you have at the higher resolution, the better understanding you are where you are. You can understand where your asset is right now. And advanced pattern recognition is extremely powerful. Um, we've, we're running three and a half thousand models across the 11 gigawatts of generation we have, including large solar, large wind, uh, uh, nine wind uh, farms, two big solar farms, hydro, fossil fuel, um, gas turbines and steam turbines. We've got three and a half thousand models predicting what 52,000 data points should be doing every five minutes. And then when you can see those deviations from normal behavior, you're picking up failure modes earlier than any other technology can provide. That, that's rich. That, that is extremely valuable. We try to keep a log of, of the value uh, per year uh, of that system. Uh, there's three engineers full-time on that system. And we're delivering between six and seven Australian million dollars per year of value recovery from just that one system. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of savings from a single system. And I think it helps put into perspective, you know, what a massive savings there is to be had just from collecting and analyzing operational data. Thank you so much, David, for walking us through everything you've been doing at AGL. We really appreciate it. Rebecca, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being patient with me as well. There's another important piece of the infrastructure puzzle we still need to consider here. Yes, we need to optimize a lot of the infrastructure that exists today. But if the goal is to eventually decarbonize the power grid, there are also pieces of equipment that are going to have to be phased out and replaced altogether. And as we discussed in our previous episode... We're going to have to do that at the same time that we increase our overall generation capacity to meet rising power demands. To dive a bit deeper into that conundrum, we have Joshua Rhodes. Joshua, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Joshua Rhodes. I'm a research associate at the Weber Energy Group at the University of Texas at Austin. So we've already talked about optimizing existing power infrastructure and preventing disastrous failures of aging assets. I want to ask you about how, if we're going to decarbonize by 2035, how will we need to expand infrastructure around the world? I mean, you can look at it into parallels with other infrastructure, like the interstate highway system or the, you know, the railroad system. The story is that, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower, as a, as a, you know, as a young man in the Army, took him two weeks to get from the East Coast to the West Coast. 
and then when became president, decided to build, you know, an interstate highway system so that you could do it in just a couple days. And that really opened up the ability of us to move goods and people and services, you know, f- across the vast country. But we're still kind of locked in terms of transmission doesn't, you know, go that far. And so if we can unlock those areas that, that have those good resources, particularly, you know, the cheapest ones being solar and wind and move that to the to the places where, you know, people want to consume it. I think that'll be the cheapest way to move forward and also, you know, help us match supply and demand. I know it's tough to think about things aging. Most of the time, we might rather not think about how much work and repair these critical systems need. It's kind of like when the check engine light pops on on the dashboard. And if you're me, you might think, oh man, I wish I hadn't just seen that. But here, instead of a ride to work or the grocery store, we're talking about a system that makes every part of our daily lives possible. But while the prospect of expanding and modernizing an old system can be daunting, it can also be exciting to think about the changes ahead. The power grid has been around all our lives, and we're talking about a massive change to how it's structured. We still have a lot to do and to figure out and to invent, but it really does feel like we're arriving at one of humanity's big technological milestones. A modernized, decarbonized power grid and an energy secure future. And that thought at least leaves me feeling pretty, forgive me for the terrible pun, but energized. Okay, that's our show for today. If you haven't already, go check out the first episode in our series, which is all about what it will take to decarbonize the grid. You can find more information about our guests and links to follow the interesting work they're doing on the episode page. And special thanks again to Pat Kennedy and his family. We're incredibly grateful for all the wisdom and innovation Pat brought to the industrial sector. Our hearts go out to you.